Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had a great weekend. Round one coverage of the NBA playoffs on Hoops Tonight is brought to you by Chase Freedom Unlimited. How do you cash back? We have a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to be hitting the first three games from today's slate. The Lakers, Grizzlies, Heat, Bucks, and Clippers, Suns. For those of you guys looking for Wolves, Nuggets, we're going to be hitting that tomorrow morning, as well as a little film session going over some of the things I learned from re-watching this weekend's games. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to The Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys missed one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight all right let's talk some basketball so we're gonna start with lakers grizzlies there is a formula that we are seeing kind of take shape with this lakers team that really works and it's lebron james and anthony davis surrounded by a ton of offensive skill this is where the value of rim pressure comes in when you have guys that just relentlessly through size and strength and athleticism and skill push the ball closer and closer to the rim, it collapses things around them, requires multiple bodies to take care of them, which leads all sorts uh, leads to all sorts of advantage opportunities off the ball. And you saw that tonight specifically with a core of three players around LeBron and AD, Austin Reeves, D'Angelo Russell, and Rui Hachimura. And they all kind of did it in their own way. I thought D'Angelo Russell had a nice bounce back game from his rough play-in performance. It was a little rough early on in that game, kind of forcing things a little bit, but he did eventually find his rhythm and he had a bunch of monumentally important spot-up jump shots. Austin Reeves, again, like how much of a luxury is it that you can, with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on your team, run your late game offense through Austin Reeves? 
And this is where having multiple offensive threats can gift you with better matchup opportunities, right? Because Dylan Brooks, as he was expected to do, especially in a game one of a series when LeBron's a little out of shape, still kind of feeling things out, he had some success guarding LeBron, giving him some trouble um, getting to his spots and feeling comfortable, right? Jaron Jackson Jr., he's going to have success uh, guarding Anthony Davis, at least compared to some of the other players around the league. That doesn't mean if you have to go to LeBron and AD, it's a bad option. It just means that you might have better options elsewhere. And down the stretch of that game, Austin Reeves got a steady diet of Tyus Jones. They tried Desmond Bain, but then they would just run some off-ball guard-guard screen to try to get Tyus back onto him. And Austin was able to get Tyus Jones trapped behind him on those screens, which gave him the opportunity to get downhill and make plays with the basketball. Austin is a real basketball player, a very, very good player who's going to make a lot of money this summer. There's a lot of talk about him being kind of dependent on his ability to get to the foul line. That's not, that's simply not the case. All you got to do is look at the numbers and look at how good he's been at every spot on the floor, converting actual basketball shots into points beyond the free throw line to know that he is capable of being a primary ball handler on a good team. And then Rui Hachimura, this is where the advantage of position battles come in. Again, like when Rui was originally traded for, it was kind of expected that he'd be that starting small forward, right? But then you trade for Jared Vanderbilt and Darvin Ham makes a tough call. He ends up moving Rui to the bench specifically because he thinks that that bench lineup needs more offensive skill and Jared Vanderbilt alongside all of that offensive skill, it's more important to have somebody who's a better defensive player, right? So you slide Jared Vanderbilt into that position. And ever since then, it's been a battle based on who's playing better on any given night to see who's going to be the guy that ends up getting the minutes when it matters, right? And that actually, that position battle actually drives success on both fronts. If Rui's the only forward and he knows that if he misses that box out or if he doesn't sprint back in transition that one time or if he's not you know, making the right reads offensively, that he just gets to stay in the game because there's no better option, that doesn't serve as nearly as good of a purpose, right? When you have real competition, real threat to your own playing time, it actually incentivizes you to do the, to, to do the little things really, really well on every single possession. And Rui is playing some of the best basketball. I'll just go out and say it. He's playing by far the best basketball of his career over the course of the last couple of weeks, in large part because he's not just embracing the offensive skill stuff that made him tantalizing coming out of college. He's also embracing all of the little things grabbing contested rebounds, defending at a high level, sprinting up and down the floor in transition, making the right reads offensively, being part of a team unit on both ends of the floor instead of just focusing on the offensive end of the floor. Anthony Davis was unbelievable in this game, obviously uh, notwithstanding a scare we had in the first half of a little stinger that he had with his right shoulder. Obviously a freaky moment when AD saying he can't move his arm. I wasn't too worried about it right away just because on the replay it didn't look like too much contact. didn't look like the kind of thing that would cause a dislocated shoulder. So I'm glad it ended up being something that he was able to play through. He was a monster in this game. Seven blocks, that's outrageous. What he was playing, doing in the past lanes, bothering shots around the rim, uh, scoring in the short roll, scoring in isolation. He knocked down a couple of important jump shots. When Anthony Davis is playing at this level, this is damn near best player in the world type of basketball. That guy can carry this Lakers team to the championship. They don't even need LeBron to be that good if AD is going to be that good. Obviously, you'd prefer to have LeBron play up to that level, but Anthony Davis is buying the Lakers margin for error, and it's making it so that a lot of guys have less pressure on them, to, and which allows them to kind of play loose and free. LeBron's a great example of this. 
all of the talent on this roster, with how well Austin Reeves played tonight, with how well Rui Hachimura played tonight, with how well Anthony Davis played tonight, he didn't have to have a great game. And LeBron had a pretty good game. I mean, if you look at the shooting numbers and you look at the timely shots he hit, he hit a massive three on the right wing in transition down the stretch of this game. I thought LeBron had a much, much better defensive game in this game. I was very critical of, of him in the play-in game for uh, him losing track of shooters and not making extra efforts. All of that stuff was there tonight. And even though he didn't have the best offensive game in the world, he had five turnovers, was a little sloppy from time to time. He had a big winning impact because he didn't need to be the offensive engine throughout the game thanks to the additional margin for error purchased or bought, bought for the Lakers by all of that extra talent on the floor. Um, I thought the Lakers defended John Morant very well. Uh, he got out in transition a few times early in the game, hit a couple of threes uh, there in that third quarter when the Grizz were playing well. But other than that, the Lakers defended him really well. They held him to 0.67 points per pick and roll. That's the most important metric for projecting forward in the series. You know, for three-point shooting, you kind of take it or leave it. He's going to make them or he's going to miss them. Those transition opportunities, you can deal with that just by focusing on sprinting back and communicating. But in the half court, that's where it becomes about personnel. How can your personnel make things difficult on John Morant? And I thought they did a really nice job. I thought Jared Vanderbilt, whenever he was in the game, did a really nice job. Dennis Schroeder did a really nice job. They, they battled and they made John Morant play in a crowd in the half court. They forced him into a bunch of turnovers. He missed some shots. It was a great defensive effort. I thought they guarded Desmond Bain really well. He was 6 for 18 from the field. Austin Reeves applying back pressure all night long, just fighting over those screens and contesting and making those shots more difficult. And then at the end of the game, he just, uh, he actually on the left wing, I think it was like middle fourth quarter, he actually chased Desmond Bain over the top of the screen and got a block with a rear view contest, which is extremely impressive. All around, the matchups favored the Lakers, and that's concerning. Game one, that again, you want to look at separating process from results, right? You know, if you're a um, if you're a Suns fan, for instance, after tonight, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. You're thinking, hey, like we miss a lot of shots that we normally make. KD is normally a lot more efficient. You could separate some process from results there and feel a little bit better about the way things went. But when the process also kind of mirrors the result, that's when it gets concerning. The Lakers got better shots in this game. They generated more rim pressure and generated higher quality opportunities for more skilled offensive players. It's going to be really hard to flip that script. LeBron didn't play very well offensively. Over the course of the series, he's the chess master kind of guy. He's going to figure out things and solve things over the course of the series and get better and better and better. And then here's the thing. As far as dealing with Austin Reeves and D'Angelo Russell, if you throw more attention to those guys, if you bring the a screen defender up higher to deal with an Austin Reeves pull-up, that opens up Anthony Davis rolling to the basket. If you stay close to your spot-up shooters off the ball, if you're close to D'Angelo Russell and close to Austin Reeves off the ball, that leaves more room for LeBron James and Anthony Davis to get going in the paint. So there's a lot of trade-offs there that don't bode well for Memphis. And then plain and simple, this John Morant injury it's so important for him, especially with how well he or how much he struggled to score and pick and roll. It's going to be very important for him to have his touch. And if his right hand is bothering him that much, that could be an issue. The one big, like silver lining, I should say, for the Grizzlies, something that should make them feel optimistic about their chances to make a run here um, uh, towards the end of the series. It's the simple fact that nobody on the Lakers could guard Jaron Jackson not named LeBron James. That's a very, very encouraging trend in the series. He, he like, like, like he was just going right at LeBron and getting high quality shots. Like he's, he's really good at um, uh, going to turn like he's going to go to his left-handed hook 
and waiting for the defender to get out of position to try to contest and then continue to pivot in through the basket to get higher quality attempts at the basket as opposed to just going to his hook shot, but then he can still make the hook shot when he needs it. So great start for the Lakers. Uh, the John Moran injury is very concerning. I, I, again, I do expect this to be a longer series. The Lakers are famous for letting the foot off, their foot off the gas when they tend to feel comfortable in any sort of situation. They played with a desperation today that got them the win. I would not be the least bit surprised if we got a lackadaisical defensive effort from the Lakers in Game 2 and the uh, Grizzlies tied the series. But very, very good start for the Lakers. All right, let's move on to Clippers-Suns. So, you know, specifically with the Suns, there's a lot to like when you're looking at their roster, right? Tons of offensive skill, three dudes who can run pick and roll at an extremely high level, all of which can succeed off the ball, an excellent screen and roll big in DeAndre Ayton, a lot to like. But one of the things that concerns me is none of those core four players actually likes to or is good at doing the dirty work. They're all guys that kind of primarily focus on what they do on the offensive end of the floor. They'll make defensive plays, right? You'll see Kevin Durant excuse me, get a big block around the rim or a big block uh, contesting a three-point shot. You'll see Devin Booker slide his feet and take a charge. You'll see Chris Paul do something grifty to, to, to save a possession here or there. They all do little things here or there, but it's not a part of their basketball identity. It's kind of supplemental stuff to them as opposed to a core part of their identity. And say what you want about Kawhi Leonard and Russell Westbrook, like Kawhi Leonard, a core part of his identity is the way he competes on the defensive end of the floor. And he did a masterful job on Kevin Durant in this game, particularly down the stretch. Say what you want about Russell Westbrook, and he's got a lot of limitations, but he played his ass off tonight and devoted all of his energy to the little things. And despite a nightmare offensive game, I think he was 3 for 19 or 3 for 18 from the field, Despite that, he was able to have a massive winning impact simply because he devoted his effort and energy towards something he knew he could accomplish, which is what he did on the defensive end of the floor. If he did that for his entire career, he might even be another echelon above the way we regard him right now. It's an interesting decision from Ty Lue to close with him because the Clippers actually went on a big run late third quarter, and this is something that I think they might have to go to in the long run, especially if Russ's impact kind of tails off. But they had a lot of success with that lineup with Bones Highland, Terrence Mann with Norman Powell, Kawhi Leonard, and uh, and Mason Plumley, right? With that group, they just had a ton of offensive skill around Kawhi, and Kawhi was able to play a little bit more off ball. You guys might remember a Kawhi Leonard three in the left corner is one that got it back to one, I think, towards the end of the third, where Norman Powell is creating that dribble penetration, drawing the help, and then kicking to Kawhi. That's another look that they can go to, but then they can also go with that team, that group they went at the uh, with at the end, where it's like Eric Gordon, Kawhi, Russell Westbrook, they're switching a lot of stuff and just locking in defensively. Ball denial was a huge role down the stretch of this game, just Russ and, and Kawhi just playing really physical denial defense on Devin Booker and, Ke and Kevin Durant, which really got them out of their sets. And, and uh, it, they struggled to even get clean looks down the end of the game. And then there at the end, Russ one-on-one -on -one with Devin Booker. Devin Booker tries to take him to the basket and Russ played a good physical brand of defense, something you can get away with in the playoffs. And he got a key block at the end of the game. Most importantly for the Suns, they're going to have to compete more physically in this game. I know it's uh, in this series. I know it's not a, a, a core tenet kind of of their basketball identity and their, and, their, and their basketball character. But in order to win, they're going to have to. They've got advantages everywhere else. 
they're going to have to compete with the Clippers physically. They got out-rebounded on the offensive glass 15-6 to in this game, including that stretch at the end where the Suns got like three stops in a row, but just could not secure a defensive rebound. That, again, this was my first major thing that I've been wrong about uh, in this postseason. It won't be the last. I'm sure there will be people in the comments uh, having their fun. And I, look, I can live with it. I'm going to make predictions. I'm going to be right sometimes. I'm going to be wrong sometimes. I thought the Suns would sweep the series. It's certainly not over. One thing I'll say kind of in the Suns' defense is they played a really rough, uh, easy schedule to end the season. And so kind of like the Lakers heading into the play-in game, they're just not accustomed to this intense level of basketball. So I wouldn't write the Suns off. I wouldn't take a victory lap or anything like that. But this is going to be a little bit more of a battle than they were expecting, particularly because the Clippers have some matchups to make Devin Booker and KD work. And the Clippers seem very, very focused on embracing the dirty work, which means the, the Suns are going to have to match them at some point. All right, before we get out of here, let's talk a little bit about Heat Bucks. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it simply because the injuries kind of changed the the learning, the lessons we can learn from the game, right? Like if Giannis doesn't play, I mean, what are we even going to get into here? I picked the Bucks to win the title. They're not winning the title without Giannis. Like Tyler Harrow, big win for the Heat, but if Tyler Harrow broke his hand and he can't play again, like that's a huge problem for a team that already kind of lacks offensive initiation, which can be a problem. Um, but there were a couple of specific things that the Heat did really well that I think are uh, uh, indicators of why the Heat have given Bucks the, the Bucks issues over the years. First of all, they do a lot of switching, so that stagnates their high pick and roll attack and uh, forces them to create in isolation, to create advantages in isolation. And with Bam Adebayo being a pretty solid defender to throw at Giannis, and Spolstra being really good at digging down into driving lanes to capitalize on some hesitant shooting on the perimeter, they can get stagnant offensively. And then from there, the Heat know they're going to struggle to score in the half court against the Bucks defense, so they were just pushing out in transition and getting all sorts of good looks there, getting the ball to the right shooters in their drive and kick attack. Max Struess is locked in right now. Gabe Vincent is locked in. Kevin Love hit a big three. They ended up shooting 60% from three as a team. So th that's why the Heat give the Bucks issues. They know how to stagnate them. They know how to get out in transition to avoid their half-court sets. It won't be enough without Tyler Harrow, but you know that's why I rooted for... I told you guys in the playing game, I was rooting for Miami to win because I knew they'd give the Bucks a little bit better of a battle. Uh, on the Bucks front, if they should have to play a little bit of time uh, without Giannis, the most encouraging thing is their advantage in perimeter size. Like The Heat just have a lot of smaller... Like, like undrafted type guys that are playing on the wing, right? And when you have big guys that can play perimeter-style basketball, guys like Bobby Portis and Chris Middleton, you don't even have to run any sort of sophisticated offense. Just dump the ball down to one of your big forwards that's going to bully his way into the lane against a smaller Heat player, either get a great shot or start things into rotation where they can get open shots on the back end. Chris Middleton and Bobby Portis combined for 54 points in this game. So good start for the Heat, but I don't know how they're going to be able to sustain this without Tyler Harrow, especially with their lack of offensive creation. It's easy to see how they give the Bucks some issues, but I think they've got some advantages they can ride out. And quite frankly, if Giannis comes back, that changes the, fundamentally what we watched um, in just their approach uh, in the second half of that game. All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. Like I said, we're going to be hitting uh, Nuggets, Wolves, as well as our uh, kind of film rewatch stuff in, uh, in tomorrow morning's show. As always, I appreciate you guys, and I will see you tomorrow morning.
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.